This is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education, bringing you another exciting episode. And today, a little different, I think, than some of them, where we've highlighted some research and researchers. I have the prestigious Kevin Andrew Richards, Kevin Dr. Richards, uh, on here from University of Illinois Champaign. And he is definitely more in the physical education realm. He's done a lot of work around occupational socialization theory and physical education teachers' experiences. And I had him on here, and why I say this is unique, because I usually don't highlight my own research. Maybe that's, I don't know, I feel weird about highlighting my own research often. And I had uh, Dr. Richards come on today, which you can say hello. Yep. Hey, how's it going? Thank. Appreciate you uh, having me on, Scott. As uh, we we we've we think this might be the second episode of of your podcast that that I've had the pleasure of uh, of being on. Maybe the third. But but I've I've been with you a few other times and, yeah. and really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. And today we're going to talk about like kind of our share. We just did some research together, and it's going to be about kind of school administrators and and educational leadership and how APE and PE fit into there. And yeah, so this is unique because I'm going to be try to be a little bit of a participant as well in this because it's our shared research. And yes, and Kevin uh, has done a lot of work. He also is a big time contributor with the Playing With Research and Health and Physical Education podcast with Risto. And that's, I think actually we did this weird shared one that you were on before. That's right. Um, we did. We, yep. we published it on both of our podcast platforms and it's like time flies by. That was like probably like four years ago. <laughs> I know it's, it's amazing. Right. And, uh, and, and, uh, hopefully you remember having committed to this part. Um, but, but, uh, um, you know, I'm recording a new segment for Risto's podcast called going behind the research where we kind of try to highlight some of the stories that, that lead to the development of the studies that we read. Uh, and, and so Scott and I, you know, we talked about this and thought it'd be kind of cool to do an exchange again, but maybe a little bit of a different way. So I'm going to have Scott on Risto's podcast in my segment um, in a couple of weeks as well. So you'll get to hear a little bit about the research uh, here and then a little bit about what contributed to it, what went behind it uh, on that podcast. Absolutely. And people are always asking for more content. So going to each other's podcast, I think is a good, great way for people to go. So Kevin, let's start. We were just having kind of a quick conversation before the podcast about this. What is your, briefly, if you can just tell everyone your background in adapted physical education slash physical education, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So, um, you know, my, my, my background was originally in, in physical education. You know, I think I, I, in some ways was that classic high school student who um, really loved physical activity, really loved playing sports connected with kids. I work some some summer programs, uh, baseball summer programs in high school that that really kind of set me on that path to feeling like, you know, I think I have a career here. Um, and that just kind of evolved into, you know, a, a love for physical education teaching. I, you know, I, in the state of Massachusetts and Connecticut, where where I grew up and went to school, uh, you, you have to have a master's degree within five years. So a lot of people will, you know, finish their undergrad, start teaching, and then go to night school to kind of chip away and do that master's. And that just never felt like it was going to work for me. So I went straight into grad school. Um, and through that process, I fell in love with, you know, working in higher education, teacher education and research. 
Um, uh, and so that kind of got me set on this path into not just PE, but into to Pete and higher ed more specifically. Um, my, my, where it kind of dovetails into adapted, at least originally, was that um, the the faculty member at at Purdue while I was there, who uh, doing my doing my master's and doctoral degree. Who, who taught our adapted course left for another university. And so they had this course that needed to be taught and nobody who had specialization to teach it. And so what do you do sometimes in those situations? You go to the grad students. <laughs> and so I was approached and asked to teach this class over the summer, adapted physical education over the summer. And uh, the class had a required field experience. But it's summer, so we can't work with schools. They're all out of session. And, uh, and so I kind of got involved with a, uh, a physical activity and aquatics program that had been started at Purdue years before, but had kind of been laying dormant called Pete's Pals. And uh, I was only supposed to run that program one time over the summer. And we ended up doing it for four years, uh, three times a year, because the community, you know, uh, the community uh, around Purdue really called for it. And, and I think at one point we had upwards of 50 children with various different types of disabilities involved. And we did some research on it. Um, and, and Wes Wilson, uh, who was a, a, an undergrad at Purdue while I was there, was super involved. And, you know, that that was kind of the the, the initial kind of launching point. And through my work with people like you, Scott, and, and Wes and Justin Hagel, um, I've, I've kind of continued to stay involved in adapted PE scholarship, although I don't consider myself an adapted PE specialist. Uh, I, can, I think we can consider you an APE, you know, we're ally or, you know, yeah, somewhere yeah. in the realm of it. I mean, what is, I mean, this is the idea of the podcast. At some point I said, what is adaptive physical education? Because honestly, you go from school to school, district to district and state to state. And our definitions often kind of get yeah. a little confusing. So, you know, depending on, uh, you know, maybe one day you're an APE kind of researcher, the other day you're not, that's all right by us. So, we're going to talk a little bit about school administrators. We can first start out, we, we recently did some research. We have a second publication that's in review right now. And we did another one with Adaptive Physical Activity Quarterly, where we interviewed adaptive physical education teachers about their experiences in with school administrators and such. And we've done other work around that idea too. Uh, before we get into the research, I think we can talk a little bit and, and again, I should be interjecting just as much this time uh, about like how are school administrators impactful to physical education and adaptive physical education programming in the teachers. And, you know, maybe you can speak on the more broad aspect uh, of what, how they impact physical education. But I think yeah. both of us have kind of found at least that they're kind of gatekeepers to yep. quality. And I think we also have both found in the APE and PE world that, I think they, they're a big part, and we can talk about the occupational socialization theory here, but they're a big part of how teachers maybe hold value in what they do in, in themselves a little bit, because I think they can often kind of drive that feeling of being marginalized and such. And yep. do you want to expand on some of that? Yeah, yeah. I, th I think you uh, you brought up some really important points there, Scott. Um, you know, uh, principals, I think, are, are uh, gatekeepers. They're, they're instructional leaders within the school. They're, they're setters of culture. 
Uh, and so if, if an administrator communicates either explicitly or implicitly that physical education and or adapted physical education are unvaluable, then that feeling can kind of permeate throughout the school and be reinforced and taken up by, by, by teachers. Um, you know, on the other hand, if you have administrators that are supportive, value a more holistic approach to education, see movement as center and core to um, to, to what they what they do in schools, then I think that that you have the the opposite of of that that's possible as well, where administrators can actually be some of our best advocates. Um, but but you mentioned that the socialization theory angle and and you know what what some of the work that, that I have I've done previously has shown, um, and I think some of the work that we're doing now together. Together, uh, illustrates that that people's prior experiences in and around physical education are, are really important, and those people could be PE teachers themselves, they could be administrators, they could be uh, colleagues in schools, they could be parents of children who attend the school, um, and, and this just speaks to how pervasive socialization is. If you have bad physical education experiences when you're young, then then you might carry that with you, you know, into adulthood. Um, and, and when your kid attends school or when you're an administrator overseeing a school, you might have these kind of negative emotions and feelings surrounding PE because of your own experiences. And that might influence the extent to which you provide support or engage in marginalizing activities. Yeah, I think that idea that they could be incredibly impactful one way or the other is is something that we saw throughout kind of the research that we've done and even just looking at other research is yes, they can be a big factor in the marginalization. And they can also then champion these things. And, and as you said, sometimes it stems with their experience in the K-12, their own experience in K-12. I wonder sometimes too, if it's like just a culture of schools that PE is devalued or sometimes maybe it's not maybe in the, you know, yeah. we did our, our research in California, which I think is a scene often is a very active um, they mm. value physical activity maybe more than Illinois, maybe. my That's my stereotype, my broad sweeping stereotype. But and maybe that physical education is valued more in those areas. I don't know. But. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think you're right about that. And I think that, you know, from a socialization perspective, you have kind of localized history that impacts that. And so, you know, maybe you had a physical education teacher who had been working at a school for 30 plus years and was really invested in their coaching responsibilities and didn't put as much effort into teaching and kind of, you know, did what we might call rolling out the ball or taking a non-teaching approach where they really don't invest much in, in their teaching. And that just over time, that just becomes the norm that becomes normalized. And, and, and if that person's not held accountable, then everybody just sees that as how we do physical education. And that can be really dangerous because all the kids going through that program whether or not they decide to go into careers in PE, hold that as a PE definition. But then the other part of it that gets tough is let's say that that PE teacher retires and then I come in fresh out of college, excited and ready to go, new ideas, pedagogical models, you know, um, formative assessment, all the things that we're talking about now as being best practice, but I'm fighting against an existing culture that I had no part in creating because everybody at that school remembers PE the way that it had been taught. And they're probably going to implicitly assume that it'll continue that way. So, so tone and culture and all those things really matter. And what makes it even more complicated, and I'll bring it back to APE, APE now, is that it's localized and contextualized. Every school is different. And one thing that we see with adapted PE teachers is they're very likely to be itinerant. 
and to teach across multiple schools. So that means there are multiple cultures, multiple administrators, multiple colleagues, sets of colleagues that they have to work with and build relationships with. Uh, in, in some of those contexts might be marginalizing and others might not be. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, going in and out and we can detail maybe the research process in a moment as well that we that we implemented. But one of the surprising findings from the research we did where we interviewed 24 um, APE teachers in the state of California about their experiences uh, with their school administrators. And we used the occupational socialization theory to kind of guide that. I guess I kind of just broke it down. But um, with that, like one of the things that came up and this this was not said one time, but was that school administrators don't even know my name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. That seems pretty incredible to me that, you know, your principal, you know, I guess I don't know how large the schools always are and stuff, but wouldn't know the people coming in and out of their school uh, providing services and wouldn't know their name. I mean, that, that seems like such yeah. a base level. Uh, and I think yeah, that's there... something. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, and, and there are some layers to that, too. Um you know, one of the anonymous reviewers uh, brought this up in our APAC submission, uh, and I had never thought about this, but but they questioned, who's the direct report? So who do these APE teachers actually report to? Are they reporting to um, local building administrators, or are they reporting to like this omnibus, uh, you know, office of special education that's district wide? Um, now, I would argue to some extent that doesn't matter because like you're saying, the building administrator should know the teachers and the people that come into and out of their building. I, I I agree with that. You know, I think that part of an administrator's responsibility is to exactly do that that thing and to and to get to know their staff, build relationships, support, and on the other hand, hold their ca- staff accountable. And you can't support or hold accountable if you don't know your people. But but it just shows how complex and layered that is. And then that also made me think about, you know, these adapted PE teachers, if they're if they're reporting to like a third party, but coming into and out of these schools, then then they have like multiple reports in a sense, because they probably feel obligated in some way to each of those building administrators. But then they have a third kind of outside administrator that they're also having to report to. So, you know, it, I think that that right there shows that that we're just barely cracking the surface on this stuff, even though we've done some important work. Work, I think, and uh, there's a lot to do in the future. No, absolutely, and and I, it gets so complicated when you talk about who who is overseeing you because some APE teachers only teach APE for part of the day, right? And then, right, how, how do that how does that work? And often it has to do with how the money is coming and all that. But again, we're talking about school administrators. That's all kind of related because they are pulling the purse string in a way that is unique, you know. I do think, though, that idea, though, regardless, as you know, I think it can very much be argued that when a school administrator doesn't know your name, you know, and I think that several of them kind of talked about also feeling the need to extend, and as we put it, uh, or one of them put it, the olive branch and being right. ones that are to to be able to get the resources and support they needed. And sometimes those resources, I think, are space because they don't have space allocated to them or they're doing stuff in hallways, equipment, yeah. time. I should actually, I, I have an example from yes, yesterday. I talked to a, an APE teacher in Iowa where I formerly was and uh, they're working in a really large area and they are, ser- they service, I think like 40 schools, not 
students and they put their consultant, right? And um, they have a student that they don't have the proper training for. It's in a rural area and who has really medically fragile. And um, they want the school administrator, the building administrator is really pushing for this AP teacher who's servicing a humongous area to come in once a week and provide services to this one student, right? Wow. Yeah. So, and because it's on their IEP, so we have to try to follow the IEP. And um, they're trying to work with the school administrator because they feel like they just can't, there's no way they can make this work in their thing. So they want them to help get people the right training, to do the hiring process they need to, whatever they need to do. And so they're working with the school, this building administrator to try to get this one child. So I say that because those are the type of things that when you have a supportive administrator that under, a, also understands what adaptive physical education is and is in the parameters around it, I think these are the negotiations that sometimes have to happen. And they can yeah, get, yeah uh, you're huh? right about that. You're right about that. And, and you know, I, I think that it's it's a really positive thing when you have school administrators who want to look out and advocate for the needs of all their students, you know, including those students with disabilities. But, you know, bringing it back to our the findings from some of the work that we've done, though, you know, this this surprised me uh, because I think in some of my early work, some of my early foyers into adapted PE work, uh, we, we found that the fact that there's federal legislation that that supports uh, and requires adapted physical education services for students who qualify was a major support stone, like a major thing that that um, that helps with advocacy efforts, with helped with perceived mattering, which reduced marginality. But in the findings of, of our most recent study, we found that a lot of the a lot of the adapted PE teachers we interviewed felt like the 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 kind of language from their administrators was we want to do enough to satisfy the requirements of the law, but nothing more. Yes, that was a big thing that also happened was that we found that the law is sometimes that we found a few things, I think, in there. We found that school administrators sometimes had little to no understanding of how adaptive physical education uh, fit in the IEP process, even though most of them said that they had a principal at their IEP meetings when they were attending. Um, and a lot of them said something like they were only there as a token APE person. Um, not all, again, not all of them said that. And some of them were very active and had school administrators that understood that thing. But then, yes, that other idea of the min- meeting the minimum, which is the problem with the idea of quote unquote compliance when we yeah. talk about IEPs and stuff is that in the law is that when we are, when we audit schools or we get schools in trouble, what becomes the priority for them is to do to hit the minimum status and nothing more and nothing less. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. yep. Versus I think the integrity of education, which is to provide quality education to students. Yep. We just uh, like in the example you just gave from Iowa there, you know, I, without, without knowing anything else about that situation, it seems a bit unreasonable to have one, one teacher who's going to service that many schools. So, so from my perspective, that's a structural issue. That's change that needs to happen at the district level where they hire, you know, more people to do this work, but that costs money. 
Um, and, and again, it's about meeting the minimum requirements while staying within budget sometime for schools like money, money is a motivator, unfortunately. And, you know, I think that that can be really difficult because, you know, what ends up happening, especially when, when, because you're dealing with federal legislation, parents often are put in positions where they have to advocate and, and get, you know, kind of almost take an oppositional stance to the school to be able to get services that, that by law they're guaranteed. Uh, and that creates difficult relationships and tensions between between different types of stakeholders. And, and and it's like schools and administrators and teachers almost start to fear parents uh, a little bit be, because or fear interactions with parents because of the legal standing behind it. And, you know, I, I think when when that kind of stuff starts to happen, who gets lost? The kids who, who really are in need of these services. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I think you're absolutely right. And then I think schools are walking on their tiptoes and they're again, yep. they're just doing things now to please the parent. It's not always the educational benefit of the child. And no. that, that we get into this neoliberal kind of issue with education here of that. All we want is the finance, like all we prioritize is financial uh, incentives and efficacy. And I think that you know, I, I just think that, that those neoliberal principles that we see kind of in our culture, even in academia to some degree. Oh, um, yeah. I think where the, the, the line is drawn in those principles and views it, in education, I, I don't I don't know if the financial incentive and, and, and that, that viewpoint of finance efficiency over everything else. And I think in the education yeah. world, it really breaks down of that's not a good way to go about it because what we want is we want to benefit students um, and, you know, mm -hmm. and that goes in academia too, you know? Yeah. We, we see a lot of that playing out in higher education and, you know, there are, I, I, I am, I'm, I'm half smiling because of, of people who know me well in, in higher education circles know that, that I have some criticisms of, of neoliberalism and capitalism, especially when you apply them to things like education, which, you know, sometimes the right thing to do from an educational standpoint is not, the financially sound thing to do, uh, and, and you need to do it. Other, you need to do it anyway because it's the, it's the right thing to do. But but to come back to your point, I mean, if you think about you know applying these financial models to education systems, the the groups that lose out are the groups that tend to be marginalized. And a physical education is marginalized, but then adapted physical education kind of straddles multiple marginalized positions, um, both in physical education and in, in special education, you know, both of which um, are, are often overlooked and under-resourced. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, I'll just cap this, this piece off with, I did another study without you, Kevin, I apologize. Next time I'll bring you back. All right. And uh, we, we interviewed school administrators um, also in California, uh, only nine, because they're much more difficult to get to participate in studies. And I, I had this one and it's, it's been swimming in my head now for like five months since I did the interview. And uh, it was a rural principal and also the superintendent, which is a rarity. And he had the most interesting quote, and it was something along the lines of, when I put my principal hat on, I want to do what's best for my students. I want them to get all the services that they could ever have. When I put my superintendent hat on, the budget line yep. just doesn't make sense for APE. Yep. I can't, yep. I can't convince my school board about, about APE because the finances doesn't make sense. And the reality is, is the school board and superintendent are the most important people that 
They're the most important thing as far as what gets funding, what gets prioritized and whatnot in a school. And if they're driven simply by the budget line, we are not going to meet the integrity of the special education law. So it's not just compliance, but what it is, what those words mean and what those kids need. And, and, And to me, you know, principals, administrators, district administrators, I mean, and then school boards, like these are the people that that need to get on board uh, for yeah. us to make meaningful change in our world. But yeah, yeah, you're, you're so right about that. And I think that that's a really valuable perspective to throw out there because it shows that it's not so it's not it's not cut and dry. It's not easy. And depending upon you know, the position that you occupy in the in the school bureaucracy, you have a different perspective and you have different motives. Let me draw an analogy real quick. Sure. Um, let's let's pretend that a school district is a college uh, in a university setting and the, the 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 superintendent is the dean and then the schools uh, and their, the schools are departments with the principals being their department heads. Rough analogy, but I throw that out there because I would argue, and I have argued, that the role of department head is to be an advocate for your faculty. Uh, and, and so sometimes that means that you have to take a stance in opposition to the dean. Sometimes that means that you have to go to the dean and advocate on behalf of your faculty. But but f- from my perspective, the 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 department head's obligation is to the faculty first. And I would I would say the same thing in a, in a school environment. So if if a principal believes that their school needs something or that something is important, then they should be advocating above um, and, and taking those concerns to their superintendent, taking those concerns to the school board and being vocal about that. And there's risk associated with that. But from my perspective, if you're occupying a leadership position like that, then it's your obligation to take that risk. Yes, I agree. I think trying to convince a superintendent of those needs. And then also they answer them to the school board. Yep. Who are then often people with zero, little to no education background, let alone physical adapted. I mean, I assume they probably often don't know what those, what that PE curriculum would even look like or what adapted physical education looks like. They might not know special education at all either. You know, there's so much and and it's so all of this, there's structural issue that we're, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And all of this is super localized, right? Because in some in some localities, you probably have school boards that get it and others and others you have those that don't. But school board meetings are open and there's always an opportunity for public comment. And so, you know, if I was a a parent or a um, a physical education teacher or another member of a community or a school community where I felt as if, you know, physical education or adapted physical education were were threatened or not being uh, advocated enough, there's always time to go talk at those places and and to use them as opportunities not to be confrontational, but to be educational. Um, and, And I haven't done that kind of work in a while. But when I was at Purdue, um, I went and spoke before several school boards. And, you know, I don't know that it always made a difference. And in most cases, it probably didn't. But, you know, I, I think it's an opportunity to educate. And it's an opportunity to to invite people in to a yeah. conversation. Well, I, I want to talk about strategies in one second that that PE and AP teachers might be able to use to advocate for themselves in their programs. But before we do that real quick, is there any other insights that you could add about, you know, this research? Um, what we just talked about and using it from the lens of the occupational socialization theory that you're 
uh, you know, the expert in. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, uh, uh, I think is in terms of extension of this work, I think that w- the reason that that understanding principles perspectives is important is because the way that they've been socialized to view physical education and adapted PE matters in terms of, of, of their understanding, the support they, they, they provide, the accountability they provide, the, the willingness they are to advocate. It's important. Um, and so the work that, that you're doing where you've talked to uh, principals directly and um, you know you, we, we've brought you into a study that, that Chris Kinder uh, and I here at Illinois started where we talked to principals uh, directly as well. That work's important. But I think we need to extend that and, and also look at how other key stakeholders are socialized. Um, most of the work that we've done in occupational socialization theory has been been very inward facing in terms of we're looking at members of the physical education profession and how their socialization influences their work. But you know, teaching is necessarily a social enterprise. So you're interacting with other people um, regularly. I talk about the big four. Uh, administrators, we've covered. Are are covering still need to cover um, parents, other teachers, uh, and the students themselves. Uh, and there are other st- key stakeholders that surround schools, um, especially when we talk about adapted PE. And you can get in conversations about like instructional aides and paraprofessionals. Um, the way that they're socialized matters because it interfaces with our work as members of this profession. So, so I think um, an important direction forward for OxSoc work, both for adapted and general physical education, is to look more at how these other key stakeholders are socialized and how that influences their support for adapt for adapted PE and PE and how that influences our experiences as members of that profession. Yeah. And, you know, before we get into the strategies, talking about future work, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I did my dissertation on special ed administrators and trying to impact their understanding of adapted physical education. And um, so it's been something irrelevant to me. And actually, there's a lot of reasons why I chose to, to focus on school administrators. And I've been trying to get back in that world and do different things with it. But one of the things that I did uh, a few years ago is I did a scoping review on um, just school, like school administrators and physical education in general over the last 20 years. 29 articles. That in 20 years that did any type of empirical work on the relationship interaction of school administrators and physical education. And that I think one or two was unadapted. And I just found that to be I believe they are an immensely important group of individuals as far as the ones that that pull the strings and what actually happens and occurs. And so over yeah. 20 years to have any, like, and, and that means like any work on it, you know, and sometimes it's really ancillary school administrators. I found that number to be like super low in what, yeah. how much work we should be doing in this. Um, Yeah. And I think that that, that, you know, you brought this up before, but I think in part that speaks to the fact that this is um, a a group of professionals who's relatively difficult in terms of recruitment. Um, You know, they're they're very busy. They wear a lot of hats. And also, you know, I think that that they, they see things through more of a politicized lens than maybe teachers do. And so I think that they see this work and and having conversations about it as potentially taking a stance and that dangerous, politically dangerous, politically dangerous. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I'm not sure if you felt this, but when we've interviewed principals, we felt that a little bit because it's almost like they give us the company line at first. And then it's kind of, you know, can we get that 
can we break through that wall and get to some realness? No, I think, uh, yes, no, there's a lot. There's even literature that's out there. That's about how difficult it is. And, you know, I mean, it's somewhat helpful, like when you're researching and trying to publish it, because we can say, Hey, we got, you know, whatever, like 20% of what a normal sample is, but <laughs> it's been shown that this group is really, really sure. difficult to, you know, you're not going to get 500 school administrators to answer a survey or something like that. And no. it's just pretty much not going to happen for all the things you said time. And they're often, they're a lot more shielded to, to express how they really truly feel. But that again, just like, I mean, I, right now, I think I'm whatever, I'm one of the very few people that's doing any work in this, in the physical education realm at all. And I shouldn't yep. be because yeah. I think, I think the, the importance of it is clear and obvious and just because a group is hard to research doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing it. So, right, right. And, you know, there, there are ways um, that, you know, you can incentivize participation and in research, of course, and, you know, maybe uh, ways that you can further kind of explicate the, the, uh, the safeguards that are in place yeah. uh, that, that uh, you know, prevent us as researchers from disclosing identities and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I, I think that it's something you're right as a physical education community and adapted community as well. We, we need to do more of this work. And uh, and I've been excited about seeing the work that you've done along this vein come out in the future and, or come out uh, recently and you know the work that we're doing collectively coming out now and hope others jump on board as well. Absolutely. So we'll just kind of finish it up with just talking about like, and, and you know, this is sometimes the thing that researchers aren't really great at about like the strategies that if an APE or PE teacher was listening to this right now, like what would we be able to tell them about how to advocate for their programs, their self to their administrators yeah. in general? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've got a couple of thoughts. Like if you, if you don't mind me getting the ball rolling, um, I want to go back to something that you said before about extending the olive branch because, you know, relationships are, are, are so critical. Um, Work that that I've done with Wes Wilson uh, and others, specific to adapted PE teachers, has shown that with that group specifically, advocacy requires relationships. If you don't have relationships with administrators, with with colleagues, then then it's really difficult to advocate. And sometimes that sometimes that relationship building also requires educating, because as we've talked about. Um, not everybody always understands and knows what an adapted PE teacher does or their role in the school. So it's like build relationships, educate, advocate. But the the part about, you know, extending the olive branch just gets to the fact that, you know, and I think that we can say this about physical education too. Typically people aren't going to come knocking down our doors, begging to build relationships with us. Yeah. They're not going to come in and ask what we do, educate me let me be an advocate for you. Typically that, you know, for better or for worse, that's going to fall, fall on our shoulders. And so, you know, I think that, that one part of, of the advice that I would give is to be willing to extend that olive branch, be willing to go out and make the first move. That might mean helping out a colleague, you know, building social capital, filling in for a lesson or, bringing the kids back to the teacher's classroom instead of having them walk all the way down to the gym to get them. It, it could be, you know, figuring out how you can integrate other subjects learning into what you're teaching as an adapted PE teacher or a PE teacher and not, not completely selling out, 
but looking for opportunities to say, hey, I'm going to do you a solid so we can open this door and start a conversation. The other thing that I would say is that I think you have to have a few hills to die on, meaning some core principles that are non-negotiables. But I also think it's important not to die on every single hill, because if we make an issue out of everything that happens, every little time that we get you know, marginalized, every little time that we feel slighted, and that's a lot of fights to pick. And, and, and instead of you know addressing those things in adversarial ways, I think that there's often ways that we can reframe and refocus that and make it an education opportunity to go back to what I was talking about before. So rather than dying on the hill, inviting that person up to stand on the hill with you and then have a conversation about why we're on that hill and why it matters. Yeah, I would I would agree. And I think even just how you um, address those things, as you said, educational, because something I've seen often and like coming like sometimes with early educators who are coming straight from a college program are excited, passionate about their area. They have the legislation to back them up in the APE world. They sometimes come in with an administrator or even a, another like a special ed teacher or something aggressive and co- confrontational Yeah, um, be- because they know. And I mean, it, it's all coming from a good place. And I think, as you said, there's a time for those things. But I think that you're going to end up with either a not listening and rejection, or you're going to simply get that compliance aspect where they're going to do the bare minimum to meet the things that you're asking for. And I think when you can develop those relationships by, you know, doing a variety of things, I think it's going to get better. And I think some of those things could be one of the things that I found in some, that other research project I did is that we had a few school administrators on there that were really positive and really appreciated their APE experiences um, and teachers. But, you know, I think, and this is a little problematic because we can't expect this always, but they all often had exceptional APE teachers of what it sounded like. And yep. I think when we can do really great things and highlight that in a really brief and quick way to our school administrators um, by, you know, whatever, taking photos, uh, having a newsletter, telling them when you're going to have specific, you know, special Olympics events. Uh, and those things can be things that school administrators really appreciate because they they highlight your school in an interesting, unique way that you're doing this big Special Olympics thing. You know, whatever those things might be, that you're doing something exceptional and you can highlight it and showcase it. And again, in a brief way, um, because they are so busy, I think those are ways that we can show value in a unique way to our school administrators because mm-hmm. um, you are a competing priority. <laughs> to your school administrator. And, and uh, we have to kind of acknowledge that and try to figure out how we can show our value to them um, and extend that olive branch ourselves. And again, this all speaks to our marginality that we have to do these things. Um, yeah. But I do think yeah. that they're often not necessary unless you have a great administrator. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, um, I, I, I'll, I'll put in a shameless plug here, I guess, for something that I believe very strongly in, which is that because of that, you know, exact thing, because oftentimes being able to marginalize, being able to advocate and being able to overcome marginality is almost a requirement for effective physical education practice and, and maybe APE as well. I, I think that, um, you know, a really important thing here is to think about how we integrate those things into both pre-service and in-service teacher learning opportunities. So how do we, how do we, you know, teach pre-service teachers about marginalization, about advocacy, about school sociopolitics, about socialization. Yeah. Um, how do we 
teach them about that. And then how do we, how do we equip in-service teachers with relational skills that allow them to, to do what we talked about, um, you know, uh, build relationships, educate and advocate. Those are skills that doesn't come natural to everybody. It's, it's not something that, that you're just born with. It, it takes intentionality and there are ways to do it well. And there are ways to, you know, not do it so well. So, you know, I think we need to not assume, I think we need to stop assuming that teachers kind of naturally have these things and make it intentional. Yeah, I would agree. One, one other aspect on that too, from our research, I don't know if you remember this, this can be kind of our last point, but there was one quote in there about somebody and it seemed like, oh man, this is like a whole nother study line of research, but they said, my, I felt like my college program set me up to be marginalized or, or kind of instilled in me that you will be marginalized. And, you know, even all the things that you're just saying, I think there are, they are a necessity, but then there is a question of like, you know, where is this marginalization maybe born? And is it, you know, if we are creating pre-service physical educators that are expecting to be marginalized, is there some, you know what I mean? There's, there's some self-fulfilling prophecy that's occurring there. And I just think that's, I found that to be so interesting that they, when they said that. Yeah. And I think that there's a, I think there is a danger associated with that. I don't think that that's off base. Um, my, my, my argument would to say, would be to say that, that we don't want to set them up to be marginalized. We want to set them up to be high quality educators who are prepared to advocate for themselves, their, their students and their programs. So, so I think it should be forward facing. I should, I think it should be about developing better programs and, 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 and sharing uh, the, the goodness that you do. And so even if you have a great program, like having a great program, having supportive administrators doesn't mean that you shouldn't be advocating, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be building relationships. It means that you should be doing all of that still to maintain um, that status. So, you know, these are things that I think you know, everybody needs regardless of, of, of what type of school they work in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, with that, Kevin, I think we've hit the tip of the iceberg on this topic and it was exciting. I was, I was excited to highlight some of our work in here, which I don't normally do and have you on here. And I'm excited to be on as your the guest, guest of a guest speaker for the Playing With Research in Health and Physical Education. So thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, this was great, Scott. Um, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and working with you these last few years. And uh, I always love having conversations. And if we get to record them and call it a podcast, even better. Um, <laughs> so I'll, uh, we'll we'll look forward to having you on um, on playing with research uh, here in uh, in a couple of weeks. And and thank you for having me on here today.